It's such a delight to be here. Uh, Pastor Victor has been one of the great leaders of our city, has been uh, helping to lead many initiatives. Um, he is also leading the prayer component of Christ Covenant Coalition. We do a regional prayer gathering every quarter. Uh, and April 27th, as uh, Pastor was alluding to, we have an empowerment summit in Bishop Raymond's church in New Rochelle from 9 to uh, 5 o'clock. And we're going through the Book of Acts. We got about 24 top leaders walking through the Book of Acts. And it's for those who want to learn how to lead, those who are uh, in the church and in the marketplace. We're going to be dealing with the birth of the church, growing pains of the church, and church multiplication all through uh, out the, the day. And uh, we have a lot of panel discussions and a lot of pastors you would recognize in the city will be there speaking. Uh, and I also want to greet my dear friend, Reverend Henry Lopez, Miriam, and great leaders in the city for many, many years. Uh, not only the director of uh, Anchor House until he retired, but also a great evangelist who's been all over the city and beyond preaching. So it's just great to reconnect and see you guys. So I'm, I'm just thrilled that uh, I can be here today. So why don't we just pray. Father, we thank you for everything you're doing in this house, for the expansion of this house, for the discipleship of this house, for the breaker anointing on this house, for the ability to call those things that are not as though they are, for the ability, the ability to reach the community in a, in a practical way. And we thank you, God, that this word will be sown into good soil in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I just sense a prophetic teaching for you. I don't know if I've ever taught on this, to be honest with you, but uh, I'm sure your pastor has taught on this already. Uh, it's a popular chapter in the book of Genesis, but I feel like this is going to relate to where you're at, the season you're at now. And hearing everything that you're working on, everything that you're about to unfold in terms of discipleship and other things, I know that, I believe that I really heard from God on this. So we're going to go to Genesis 14, and I want to talk about God's warring household. God's warring household. In Jesus' name, give us your wisdom. Give us your understanding. Now, I'm not going to read uh, this whole section, but to summarize, we start with Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, and we look at that and we go to... Um, verse 12, we see that there was a war between several factions made up of kings of areas and cities. And uh, you have one led by Amphrophel, king of Shinar, and they made war against another faction that was led by the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they all had their own allies and their own uh, alliances, as we would see similar today, as the United States, as NATO, uh, were allied with Western Europe. 
and Russia is allied with Iran and Syria and uh, other places and so on and so forth. And so it was no different in those days. Nations had alliances to protect themselves. And basically they were fighting over territory. Now you could say that these nations represented demonic principalities and hosts of hell. Uh, when you see who the good guy is in this case, you know the city he represents is far from good. So you could imagine how bad the king of uh, Shinar was uh, because the king of Sodom was on the right side in this particular instance. So you could say that they represent warring demonic hosts that are in competition for territory, right? Uh, how many know that there are demonic hosts that are warring for dominion over this area, over our city, over our nation? And we see uh, that they took not only the goods of Sodom when they defeated, these kings defeated Sodom and Gomorrah, the king Amphrophel, king of Shinar and his alliances, actually defeated uh, the king of Sodom and all of his alliances, but they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. And so we see this, this book is talking about households, it's talking about nations, it's talking about kings. In this particular time, these kings representing demonic hosts that wanted leadership in certain territories, were warring against each other, and uh, then we see that they took Lot. And then we find that someone escaped, verse 13, and told Abram, who later on became known as Abraham, and he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, the brother of Anah, and these were allies with Abram, so he had his own allies. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led them out. Uh, he, let, he led out his trained men born in his own house, which were 318, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, as well as the women and the people. And then after his return from the defeat of Chedalarama and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God most high. And Melchizedek blessed him Blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram, God of Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except that which the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Ana, Esco, and Mamre, let them take their share. 
And so going back to verse, uh, uh, actually we're going to start with verse uh, 12. When we think of uh, this theme here, which was Abraham's household, we see that Abraham had a household that had its own DNA, its own shared values, its own culture. How many know that every one of our households have a DNA? You may think, well, I only have a DNA for myself. No, you have a DNA in your house. Whether you're a single mom, whether you're married and have children or have no children, there is a culture that people walk into when they walk into your house. And that is to say, God has called your families. You see how this fits even the baby dedication. God has called your families to perpetuate a godly DNA, a godly culture, which would then be a godly uh, generational blessing. So God has called our families to perpetuate generationally a blessing. That's why God said to Abraham later on, uh, actually in chapter 12, he said, I've called you to be a blessing. And how that's going to happen is in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's blessing is going to come through families through the Abrahamic line which we've seen fulfilled in Jesus. The Bible says that we're all children of Abraham if we come to God by faith in Christ. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.29, we're all children of Abraham. So we're part of this great family, this great household. And so we see that there is a household represented, uh, a household of God that went to war against these demonic kings, these demonic entities that represent the invisible forces of hell and their interest on the, on, in the world. And we see that we ourselves have families. Our family can be co-lined with demonic forces of hell, which are in the culture, the way Lot was, which is what I'm going to get to. Or we could be aligned with God's kingdom. We could be aligned with God's kingdom. And just because you're born again doesn't mean you're not aligned with the forces of hell. Because if you are getting your impulse and you're getting your direction from the culture, and if you are mimicking popular culture, chances are you are a puppet of the kingdom of darkness, even though you're saved. And you don't even know it. So what we have to understand is Lot... Even though he was saved, it tells us in Second Peter that Lot was vexed in his righteous soul with the ungodliness of Sodom, yet he still chose not only to live there initially, knowing their history, knowing their track record, knowing their reputation, which you could read if you want to read about it, go to Genesis 18. He not only chose to live there, he chose to stay there. I don't know why. And because he chose to stay there, what happened to that community happened to him. And so what we have to understand is this is not the same as living in New York City. We're called to live amongst those who don't know the Lord because we want to be a witness. That's our mission. But he was co-aligned with them. He was aligned with them in every way possible when he didn't have to be. He was in covenant with these people. And that's different. And so what we have to understand is even our family, 
We have to see who we're aligned with. We have to see whose values we are perpetuating. We re represent, we showcase, we celebrate. Because God has called every family to be a blessing so that we can bless all the families of the earth. As a matter of fact, the word dunamis, which is the word power, as you can see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that we will receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. The word dunamis is connected etymologically to the word dynasty. A dynasty is power on a family, not just an individual. Power socially, power economically, power politically. God's Spirit comes upon us, not just so we can go to heaven, but we can disciple our children, and that we can have a strong family that will then have a dynasty throughout generations that will have influence, that will be greater than the Clinton dynasty, the Bush dynasty, the Kennedy dynasty. These are all dynasties. Well, God has called churches to be a family of families that raises up and heals marriages, heals children, restores fathers back to their uh, children, children back to their fathers, so that we can have family dynasties that will go out and we will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Amen. The greatest witness right now of the gospel is not going out on the street and handing out tracts. It's okay if that's what you want to do. But one of the greatest witnesses is that we have strong marriages in our house. And we have strong marriages in our churches. Because all the marriages out there are falling apart. If we are raising up kids, if we are walking in love and walking in peace and joy in the midst of uh, all the trauma that's taken place, that's a strong witness. Whenever you are, wherever you are, if you're walking in God's joy and God's peace, that's a strong witness. You don't even have to preach. People will know that you're different. So you can imagine families that are raised up in the ways of Christ. No one's family is perfect. Not everybody's child is going to serve God 100% all the time. Uh, we all deal with kids that backslide, but we believe in God that they all come back. And we believe in God that marriages will be where they should be. So we're all a work in process, but yet even though we're a work in process, people see that in spite of our challenges, we still have somebody that we look to. That's a great, great witness. And so we see that Lot was taken captive because he was aligned with the wrong crowd. You know, if you're hanging out with drug dealers, you're probably going to get arrested, even if you don't take drugs and don't sell drugs. Why? Because you're in covenant with them by always hanging out with them. And so you will be identified and categorized by who you were with. And this is what happened to Lot. Lot co-aligned himself. That's what the word coalition means. You're co-aligned. He was in coalition with the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of that, when they were, uh, uh, when they lost the battle, when they were in battle, he was the one who suffered as well as they did. And so he was part of this uh, group that was not covered by God, that did not have the alignment unto Christ, that did not walk in the ways of God, and that did not walk in the ways of Abraham. He didn't have to leave Abraham. He didn't have to uh, leave that covering. He didn't have to go where he went, but he chose to leave. And so we see that Lot became a victim in this particular instance. And so it says that Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, his nephew, 
And what did he do? He let out his trained men. Someone say trained men. Born in his house. That means that they were part of his household, not biologically. They were born in his house, meaning they adopted Abraham's DNA. They adopted his ways. They adopted his culture. They adopted his values. They adopted his God. They were born in his house. They were sons of Abraham. But they were not just in his house. It says they were the ones who were trained. There were many others in his house, but he didn't take them because those others weren't trained. You see, you could go to church, but it doesn't mean that you're a disciple. A disciple is one trained. A disciple is one disciplined. A disciple is one focused. A lot of people in Pentecostal charismatic churches they just go around by how they feel led. But that doesn't mean they're focused. Doesn't matter how much you dance and sing and shout and speak in tongues, but are you trained? Are you disciplined? Are you focused? Are you submitted to authority? Are you co-aligned under a church and spiritual leaders and mentors? And so they were trained. Training is not easy. Training is not always a feel-good experience means you have to be willing to take correction. You have to allow people to speak into your life, not just ministerially, but personally. That means you have to submit things uh, that you normally wouldn't want to submit. But it means that if you want, the Bible says, if you want to be a leader in God's house, it says that you have to learn how to manage your own house well. If you can't manage your house well, how can you be a leader in God's house, it says in 1 Timothy 3, which means that your personal business should be our business. How are we going to know if you're not managing your own house if we don't know what's going on? And so uh, it doesn't mean we have to know every little thing about you, but it means that if you're having marital problems, we should find out about it. If you're having problems with your kids, we should find out about it. We need to understand what's going on so that we can understand where you're at and so we can help you and speak into you so that we can help you raise up a godly DNA, a godly dynasty in your family. And so we see... That this is not just about a Sunday experience. Jesus said, I am the institution. Jesus said, I am the government. Jesus said, I am the religion. Amen? Amen. No. He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am the institution. He didn't say, I'm Sunday for two hours. Way means it's part of everyday life. In Deuteronomy 6, when he said to them, uh, I am the Lord uh, the Lord your God, who is one God, he said, you shall talk of them when you walk by the way with your children. Christianity is a way of life. It's a world in life view. It's not just a religion. It's a way of life. Integrating into your family, integrating into your uh, place of business, in your neighborhood, in every part of your life. It's part of everything that we do. If he's not Lord over everything, he's not Lord at all. And so we see here that they were trained men. Not everybody's trained. Not everybody is a disciple. So what would have happened if you would have taken untrained people out to fight these demonic hosts? They would have got their butts kicked. If you don't allow yourself to be discipled, you are vulnerable to the enemy even more than someone who is trained. If you don't allow yourself to be discipled, 
you're, you're, uh, you're vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. The devil's already been defeated. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant that he already saved us, he defeated the devil. Satan has been defeated by the blood of Jesus. Already. It's not going to happen in the future. He's already been defeated. So the why does Satan still have power in Christian homes, uh, with marriages, with people? A, because of unbelief and disobedience, but B, it's because of ignorance. Your greatest enemy is not the devil, it's ignorance of God's word. And what you don't know about the word, Satan knows, and he'll use what you don't know against you. And he deceives you. That's how he beats you. And so Abraham wouldn't dare take untrained men out to battle. And uh, if you're not trained, if you're not a disciple, you don't know how to handle yourself in warfare. You don't know how to handle yourself when the enemy attacks. And when you're a new Christian, especially you're not trained, and you need to definitely connect strongly to the church. But some people have been saved for years, and they still don't know how to handle the enemy. They still don't know how to defend themselves. They still don't know how to resist the devil. And so just because you're in church doesn't mean that you're trained. So you have to understand, and I believe God is saying this prophetically to this church, that everybody here should be in those discipleship classes. Everybody here should allow themselves to sit under the Word, to learn the New Testament survey, to learn about the Pentateuch, uh, the, uh, the components, the three components of the Hebrew Bible, which would be the uh, Nevim and the Ketuvim, or other parts of the Hebrew Bible that has to do with the Law and the Prophets, the Books of Wisdom. You need to learn all that. You should have a handle. You should be able to, eventually you should have a goal of summarizing each book of the Bible. You should know why it was written, who wrote it, for what reason. There are 66 books of the Bible. You should, in three years, you should be able to understand what the purpose of each book is, even if you don't memorize the verses. You should understand this is your tool. This is your sword. How in the world are you going to have weapons? You don't know what the point of having a weapon is. It'd be like coming to a gunfight with a knife. You got to know which book of the Bible is going to be useful for certain things that you deal with or people's uh, issues. You got to know what tool to take out of the toolbox. Can you imagine a mechanic who, who came to work, all he had was a hammer. And he, he's a mechanic. He came with a carpenter's tool. You know, you got to know what the Bible says and not just a few verses like, by his wounds I'm healed. I believe that. But if that's all you know, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. Big trouble. So you need to have those uh, teachings under your belt so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why God says all scripture is God-breathed and useful to equip through doctrine and training and righteousness so that you could be adequately equipped for every good work. That means, contrary to that, if you don't know the scriptures, you are not adequately equipped. You're not trained. And so he took trained men that were in his house, born in his house, 318. And then it says in verse 15, he divided his forces. He divided his forces, meaning they were so trained that they didn't need him with them to win. You can tell how much influence you have by how people behave when you're not around. How much your kids respect you when you're not home. 
your kids know you're going out for three hours and you sneak back and they're having a party at home with only people. You know that you don't have a lot of influence. You hear what I'm saying? So uh, your pastor doesn't have to be here for you to act and behave in a certain way. You should be able to release him to preach. I preach maybe, if 25% in our church in the last 10 years, that's a lot. I had one businessman come and he loved the church. He said, the one of the main reasons why I love the church is because even when you're not here, they're, they're still structured. They still know what they're doing. And so he divided his house. Why did he divide it? Because he knew that they couldn't win if they all stuck together. They had to go in different directions. They only had 318 people. And so Abraham understood delegation. He understood that he trained these people to trust these people for ministry, to do what he couldn't do because he's not omnipresent. We're not God. So we train to trust, to delegate. And the proof that you really are trained and that you are reliable is that when we're not around, you're still doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're still holding your ground. And so God has called us not just to plant churches, but to plant movements. Movements. We're not, many churches are, are like a, uh, a swamp where there's no movement. And that's why they stink so much. God has called us to be a river, not a swamp. We plant churches that are movements, that are training people, that are sending people out, that are helping others go out and start churches or, or plant churches or uh, become leaders in certain facets of society. That's what it means to divide a movement because the key to a movement is the distribution of labor. The more you distribute labor by training people and trusting them, the more you're gonna have a movement so that things are happening. You get to a point where the pastor doesn't even know what's going on with half the things in the church. When people come up to me and ask me, when is the baptism? I say, I'm the wrong person to ask. I have no idea. Why? Because I'm not the one in charge of planning all that. And that's good because the more people who are released to serve, the more of a movement we can have. The more people that are moving out and doing what God has called them to do. And that's where, especially now that your pastor has retired from the secular arena, God is now refiring him. And the discipleship is gonna step up, the training's gonna step up, the involvement's gonna step up, the, uh, eventually the delegation's gonna step up, there's gonna be new opportunities, new venues, there's going to be an expansion, as it says in Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, to expand the tents, to uh, take the pegs and put them out further, there's going to be an expansion. There's going to be more and more people. And it's not just about crowds. It's about uh, training. It's about more leadership being raised up, more discipleship, more mature people who are going to be able to handle things. So he doesn't have to hold everybody's hand. He doesn't have to do every hospital visit. He doesn't have to do every wedding. He doesn't have to do every funeral. He doesn't have to do everything, all the counseling. So that people are raised up. So all this is happening. So he can give himself to the ministry of the word and prayer. So he can be like Moses who was Godward. And then he had those who over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. That's where God is taking this church to another level. And it's going to expand and explode. Because he's going to have more focus here. 
How many of you are excited about that? Praise God. And so, even though this church has been making disciples, even though this church has been a model church, it's going to explode. It's going to uh, happen at a greater level because there's going to be greater focus from the leader. Praise God. He's been a blessing because he's been able to support himself uh, almost 100%. But you're going to also get to a point where you're going to have to support him more by supporting the church, which we'll get into. And so Abram took these men that he trained, he divided his forces against them by night, and then it tells us that he brought back all the goods as well as Lot. So he plundered those who plundered the king of Sodom and his allies. And then verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And verse 18, and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, according to Hebrews 7, when it talks about Melchizedek, it says he had no genealogy. And it said, of whom we testify, verse 13 and 14 of Hebrews 7, that he lives. I believe Melchizedek was what's called a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. So Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. That's a type of communion. Basically, they had communion. It was a covenant meal. Now, he was the priest of God Most High. And what was uh, happening there was he was showing... As it tells us in the book of Judges, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, book of Joshua, uh, chapter 5, that he, as the captain of the armies of the Lord, went out to battle with Abram. In the, as the captain of the army, as Melchizedek, he went out to battle. That's why they defeated all these kings. So he was there, he was giving out bread and wine to Abram, he's giving him communion, and then... It says, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and Abram gave him a tithe of all. Powerful. Wow. And so, Abram met Melchizedek. They had this covenant meal. And... In this covenant meal, he gave him a tithe. And then it tells us that the king of Sodom came out to meet him. So you have a type of, uh, you have Jesus, and then you have someone who represented the kingdom of hell came out to meet him. Said, give the people to me, take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong a shoelace of anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. And so here Abram refused to compromise himself. He refused to co-align with the forces of hell. He refused to cut corners to get ahead. He refused to become rich based on the economy of hell. Because what king of Sodom and what they were doing to generate money was pretty bad. We can almost guess things like prostitution and other things were so involved. He said, I'm not taking any of that. So he refused to, to get wealthy from anything that the king of Sodom owned. 
He refused to take what wasn't his or wasn't granted him by God. But yet, even though he didn't take it, he still gave God a tithe. Wow. On the one hand, he wouldn't compromise by taking what wasn't his, but on the other hand, he wouldn't compromise by not tithing. You see, you got people in the church. They're in God's house, but they don't tithe. They don't give God 10%. You got people who take communion, but they don't tithe. If you don't tithe, you're not mature, and you're not trained, and you're not a disciple. You are like a 40-year-old man who still lives with his mother and doesn't pay any rent. You're like the person who wants all the benefits but doesn't want to support the house. You're the person who wants to live with your girlfriend and drink the milk without marrying the cow. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. Now the Puerto Rican in me is coming out. In New York, you don't have to guess what they mean when they preach. You could just, we just tell it. And so, if you're not tithing, you can't be trained. In the same way, a 40-year-old man can't grow up. He's acting, he may have a 40-year-old man's body, but he's acting like a 13-year-old. Because he doesn't support the house. God has called us to support the house. Amen. And when we take communion together, the word communion has to do with co-union. That means that what he's fighting, I'm fighting. That means that his family is my family. That means that what this church's vision is, this household, this family, family's vision is, it's my vision. That means when they can't pay the bills, I can't pay the bills. That means when they're challenged, I'm challenged. So you have to go from being an employee to a proprietor. You are a shareholder, you're not just a worker. You are not just someone who clocks in at nine and leaves at five. You're somebody who lives and dies based on the blessing of God in the house. You gotta start acting like owners, not employers, not employees. Employees don't care what kind of problems, as long as they get their paycheck. Proprietors, because they are owners or co-owners, if there's an emergency, they don't leave at five o'clock. They are there. If it takes two days, they're there. They won't go home until the emergency is solved. God has called this church to be filled with proprietors. People train, people disciple who are not just benefiting from the house, but are shareholders and part of the house. Sons of the house who are supporting the house. And so we find that Abraham understood the principles of God. People he trained understood the principles of God. And these people were able to defeat the enemy.
because they were trained. Do you want to be able to defeat the enemies in your life? Do you want to learn how to stand on your own two feet? Well, you need to be trained. You need to be in the discipleship program, if at all possible. You need to be in co-union, communion, not just taking the wafer once a month, and co-aligned in the coalition. And God has given you a great, great leader with a lot of influence in our city and beyond, with churches, many pastors who look to him, and a great leader in our coalition, which represents many, many churches. And so you are submitted to and connected to and aligned to somebody and a household that I could attest is good soil, a good reputation of something that you will not regret. There are people, they pour their life in the wrong ministry. Because they find out years later that it wasn't what they really thought it was. Well, this is what it looks like publicly. How your pastor lives in private is how he lives in public. And so I want to share with you in terms of giving you the opportunity today to be a disciple. I believe God wants everybody here to start to tithe. Now if you've never tithed and if you're scared to death over it, Start off at 3%, then 5%, then go to 10 Start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I just started right from get-go. I said, this is, this is God, this is God's word. It's going to work, whether I, you know, and I never saw God fail me. So, I mean, I encourage you, start at 10 But start somewhere is my point. At least start somewhere. Start making, if you want to take baby steps, start doing it. I would encourage you to get in the discipleship process. And I would encourage you to learn how to wield the sword of the spirit. Double-edged sword that divides soul and spirit, joints of marrow. That is the sword of the Lord that Jesus used when the enemy tried to attack and test him. He's able to quote scripture because he understood what tool to take out of the toolbox based on what the enemy was saying to him. You need to know what tool to take out of the toolbox. You need to know what weapon to pull out. You need to have something equal or actually greater than anything the enemy's throwing at you. If all you know is three scriptures and the enemy's doing something different that you're not used to, you're going to quote the wrong scripture. It's not going to help you. And it's not just quoting scriptures. Know how to live the scriptures. It's knowing how to walk them out. It's people walking with you. I remember when I first started ministry in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, in 1980, I came across the first person I ever met who had devils, demon-possessed person, tried to kill me in a Bible study. And I didn't know what I was doing. That was not something I learned in Bible Institute. It was not something my pastor taught me. So what I do is I stood on a chair and read Psalm 91. The devil just got even worse and <laughs> laughed at me tried to get on, get on that chair and took about seven people to pull off an 
pound Hispanic woman off me. But I had to learn. Within two weeks, I said, I can't wait to get, I learned. We cast those devils out. Because I had other people around me I could go to. There isn't anything the enemy could throw your way that could defeat you if you become aligned to God's household. Because what you don't know, someone else knows. And you fight as a body. The Bible tells us to put on the whole armor of God. You know that that was written to the church of Ephesus. It wasn't written to an individual in Ephesus. You can't put on the whole armor of God by yourself. Only a church could put on the armor of God. Because part of the instruction there in Ephesians 6.18 is to pray always in perseverance for all the saints. How could you pray always? I need to sleep. I don't pray always. Unless I'm praying in the Holy Ghost while I'm sleeping and I don't know about it. At least one-third of my life I am not praying. <laughs> At least. So how could I fulfill Ephesians 6? Well, because I don't have to. The church, together. Someone, God is getting somebody up at 1 in the morning, another one 2 in the morning, another can't sleep, another one's up all night, and if it's not in our church, I got somebody else in Christ's covenant who's praying with somebody else in another part of the, the world that we're connected to. So we're all praying. You cannot make it by yourself. It would be like somebody who's in Afghanistan gets so upset at ISIS, says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I don't care what my sergeant is saying. I don't care what the general is saying. These guys are moving too slow. And they go out all loaded up. How long are they going to last? They're going to die within hours. You go outside of the troop. You don't win. You lose. In real life, Rambo gets killed. There's no such thing as a Rambo in real life. They all die. There's no movies made about them. Just post-mortem reflections. That's it. And so being discipled and trained means that you're becoming a shareholder of the house. You're adopting the DNA. You're adopting the ways of God in the house and the vision of the house.